You're listening to the preaching ministry of First Baptist Church in Newton, North Carolina. By God's grace and for His glory, we're striving to be a community of disciples who are growing in trust, growing in love, and growing disciples. We pray you'll be encouraged to deeply love and trust our Savior Jesus Christ through this ministry. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Sure. Does everybody have a handout today? Raise your hand if you do not have a handout, and Oakley can get you one. Okay, and does anybody need a pen? Okay. Um, let me just say thank you. There's, when we found out we couldn't meet in the other building, um, that was uh, fairly late in the week, and people just, um, just jumped to work. Uh, Chris Griffin, Chris Rito, Butch, I was getting calls, Tyler, Mark, they had to move all the sound down here, Jody, um, helping, I'm just thankful for getting this room all set up, and then other people calling me, hey, how can I help get, get ready for today, I just really appreciate it, it's a lot of work, thank you. It sounded exactly like the word, crash! And as we tried to figure out what in the world was happening, my brother was in the front seat with his, with his mouth bleeding, where his, I won't go into details, what happened. My mother was outside the car. She had been thrown from the car while it was moving and was, had a, an injury on her head where, where the back tire of the car hit. She hit her head on the back tire of the car as the car went past her. And so as we were trying to figure out what in the world was going on, uh, we, were, we were there, I'm assessing the situation, but finally sitting up with our back to the car, I'm an eight-year-old little boy just shaking, scared to death, and i never forget what was going through my mind in those moments as we sat there waiting on the ambulance. I said, why me, Lord? Why is this happening to me? You ever ask that question? In most circumstances, it is a selfish, arrogant, short-sighted question according to Lamentations 3. Lamentations 3, this verse 39, shares in one little verse a reality that we are masters of denying. And I'll tell you, unless we get the message of Lamentations 3, verse 39, nothing that the Lord has revealed about what we're going to talk about today will mean anything. It'll seem horribly unfair to you. This question, why me, Lord, is a ridiculous question because Lamentations 3.39 says, why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins. In other words, knowing what I know about my sin, I have no right to complain about anything. 
knowing what I know now, it's a perfectly self-righteous question to ask on that day. But I want to submit to us this morning that it is a great question to ask in worship with a heart that has been humbled to worship. Then that question gets turned, why me, Lord? Why in the world would you allow me to gather in your presence with your people and call upon your name? Why, why have I been invited to draw near, the Bible says, with boldness to the throne of grace? Why in the world would I be invited to the throne of grace to find help from God? Wouldn't it be a great question to ask when we come to God guilty, stained with some vile thought or some sinful act, and we, and we come before the Lord, and we have God Almighty who has every right to thunder down judgment, say instead to you, you're forgiven. You are mine. I sent my son to die for your sin. I sent my son to die for that sin. You are my child, a beloved child, the Bible says. Why me? Wouldn't it be a great question to ask like, if, if you got to see the Lord use you, maybe a word of encouragement to somebody who really needed it at just the right time. You knew it was the Holy Spirit prompting you to say it. You say it. It's exactly what you need. Don't we need to say, why in the world would you let me be a part of that? Or you, you have a, a, a word that God uses to save somebody? Why? Why am I getting to participate in the activity of God? Why me, Lord? In those contexts, coming from a grateful heart is a great question. My guess is that when Isaac learned the story that we're going to study this morning, that was his question. Why me? Open your Bible with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17. I'm going to begin reading in verse 15 and read down to verse 22. Genesis 17, verse 15. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And indeed, I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of kings. Excuse me, a mother of nations. Kings of people will come forth from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, 
I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him, and I will make him fruitful and multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. When he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we open your word today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak. And that your Holy Spirit would overcome every ounce of resistance. Every, every sin that right now we are hoping that, that you don't address today. And that we can keep that safe and keep that away from your eyes. Father, I pray you'd break through that resistance. And that with open hands, we would offer you all of us. Father, I pray that you would, you would break through the resistance to, to believe everything that you've revealed. And, and that our goal today would not be to manufacture, to, to design some kind of God that appeals to us and agrees with us and thinks like us. Lord, I pray you would humble us to worship you. That you would reveal yourself and we would love what we see. Father, as we think about doctrine today, Lord, I pray that these would be doctrines that are lived out in real life, in our everyday life, that you would make us bold in our faith and bold in our love and bold in our evangelism. Father, I pray you would remind us that you are a rock worthy of our trust, worthy of our worship, and that you would destroy idols, you would destroy worry, you would destroy guilt, and you would replace it with worship of your Son. It's in his name we pray, amen couple disclaimers. Reading this text together is, is sort of like us climbing together up onto the high dive. And, and then expounding this text is kind of like us plunging ourselves into the deep end of the theological pool. This is, it, it's these kind of passages that, that, that pastors are tempted to skip over because they tend to be a little controversial. There are few doctrines more humbling. There are few doctrines that excite more people to anger. Here's why. Be because what we are going to discuss today, that the truth about God that we are going to explore today, strikes at the very heart of human pride and self-sufficiency. In order for us to raise our eyes beyond our puny selves to celebrate God in all of His wisdom and His power and His kindness. Here's what I hope today. I hope that if you're a believer this morning, that if you, that you, you will know that if you love, you will leave here knowing in your soul, I love God 
Because he first loved me. I didn't come to him. He came to me. I didn't decide to follow him. He decided, as Romans 6 says, to hand me over to this teaching. I hope you'll see that there's nothing good in you. Nothing special about you. Nothing lovable that would commend you to God. That He has chosen to set His affection on you for reasons that you don't know, that I don't know. We don't know why other than that He loves us. He's simply chosen to love you. In spite of all of our weakness, in spite of all of our failure, in spite of all of our sinful tendencies, in spite of every wicked thought and evil deed that God already knew you were going to commit, God chose to set His affection on you before the foundation of the world and to write your name before the foundation of the world, before Genesis 1-1. He chose to write your name, believer, in His book of life. And then to send His Son at the proper time to make you His. Some of you never thought about this before. Some of, in some of our minds, the idea of like getting saved or being saved is something that you do. You somehow wise up, come to your senses, get tired of your sin, and you, you get saved. As if it's something that you do and God puts His stamp of approval on it. In, instead of something that God does from start to finish. But I encourage you, if you go home and just read the Bible... With, with these truths in mind, you will find the heartwarming doctrine of God's sovereign election everywhere. In, in 1998, um, someone asked me, does God choose who will be saved or do people choose to submit to God by an act of their own free will? And I answered that question with four small words. I have no idea. And so I got my journal. This is my first journal right when I became a Christian. I got this journal. And, I, and I, he posed, my friend posed that question to me. This is literally the third page in my journal. This is like the third major thing that God started teaching me when I was a brand new Christian. And I said, I have no idea. Does God choose people or do people choose God? And so I just took this piece of paper and I drew a line down the middle. And every time I read in the Bible where, where it seemed that the Bible was teaching that God chooses people for himself, I wrote it on the left side of that, of that line. And, and every time I, I read in the Bible where it looks like people choose God, I wrote it on the right side of that line. And I, I encourage you to do that, not just with this topic, but with, but with every topic. For, for you to, to read the Bible. Go to the Bible. You got a question, listen to the Bible. Open up your Bible and see what God says. Don't leave here today and say, I'm going to go find a book on election and read it. No, read the Bible. See what God says about... I'm just a man. And I got so much stuff wrong. Don't even listen to what I'm going to say. Go home and read the Bible. 
And ask the Lord every day before you read the Bible, God, I'm going to open up your word. And it is your word. Would you reveal yourself to me so that I believe what's true about you and then I walk in it? The first passage you can write down in your journal is Genesis 17, 15 through 22. Let's look at it together. Now, I want you to see three things this morning from this text. First, I want you to see an old plan. Secondly, I want you to see a divine choice. And then finally, I want you to celebrate a great salvation. Notice with me first an old plan. As we read this text, I want you to notice that, that God is making promises for the future. How can He do that? How can, how can God make promises about the future? Wrestle with this. And here's the answer. God can tell you what He's going to do in the future because He already planned it in the past. Look at verse 16. I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people will come forth from her. Look at what Abraham says in, in, verse, in chapter 17, verse 18. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Abraham saying, God, don't worry about all that. That's impossible. It's impossible for Sarah to have a kid. Just, just use Ishmael. Bring, bring all your promises to bear through Ishmael. And I can imagine what God must be thinking. <laughs> I think God was thinking something like this. Abraham, do you really think that I'm making this stuff up as I go along? <laughs> and God is like, one word for you, Abraham. Hagar. Let's get this straight. In this relationship, you're the one shooting from the hip. You're the one seeing something that you want and manipulating all kinds of circumstances to try to get what you want. Abram, I don't shoot from the hip. What I'm doing today, what I'm doing in the future, I planned a long time ago. And I'm working that plan. This is the same promise I made to you all the way back in Genesis 15. Before you slept with Hagar. Remember that? Abram, count the stars. So shall your descendants be. Genesis 13, I told you all the land which you see, I will give to you and to your descendants forever. Genesis 12, I will make you a great nation and you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And, and as we've seen, this promise didn't originate in Genesis chapter 12. This promise originated back in Genesis 3. When he says, I'm going to send a Savior who's going to crush the head of the serpent. But in reality, that doesn't go far enough because actually that plan didn't originate in Genesis 3. The Bible says that plan originated before Genesis 1-1. Before the very foundation of the world. Think about Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as He chose us in Him when? Before the foundation of the world. Titus 1.1 Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Literally, before the time of the ages. 
The King James translates it like this, before the world began. We read this every week. Now the God of peace, Hebrews 13, who brought, us, who, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. What God is promising in Genesis 17 was planned a long, long time ago. That's why God can say, my covenant is with Isaac. We have to get this. This is amazing. God is saying, no, my covenant is with Isaac. He's saying that in Genesis 17. God is telling Abraham what he's going to do in the life of Isaac. But get this, Isaac won't be conceived until Genesis 18. He won't be born until Genesis 21. How could God do that? Because God made a plan a long, long time ago. Before the world was even created. You with me so far? God is working an old, old plan. Notice with me next, a divine choice. I'm going to warn you, this is where people start to squirm. But these things aren't revealed to us to make us squirm. They're being shared to make, us, to make God's people celebrate. To praise Him for sovereign, lavish, stubborn grace. I want you to notice in this text that God makes a choice between the two sons of Abraham. He chooses to establish His covenant with one of them and not the other. And it's, it's not as if God is saying, well, I, I have to choose one of these. No, He doesn't. He doesn't have to choose Isaac. Isaac's not even born yet. God is just deciding. I'm going to establish my covenant, not with Ishmael, but with Isaac. Now, if you're thinking about this and not your grocery list, you, you probably some questions are popping up in your mind. And so I want to anticipate some of those questions and just kind of walk with them, uh, think with you through them. First, why did God choose Isaac and not Ishmael? And here's the answer. We don't know. We don't know. The secret things belong to the Lord. But there's been enough revealed for us to feast on His kindness. Leave your place in Genesis 17 and turn over to Romans in the New Testament. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, Paul is lamenting the fact that even though he's personally labored in tears to proclaim Jesus to his fellow Jews, so many of them have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And they're living without Christ. They're dying without Christ. And they're going to hell while they're dying forever without Christ. And so 
Paul's heart is breaking in Romans 9. He says in Romans 9, when I am telling the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul, it is, I, I can't fathom what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I wish I could go to hell so that my brothers, the Jews, could be saved. Don't you want that kind of evangelistic heart? My kinsmen, according to the flesh, verse 4, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God bless forever amen but even when his heart is breaking Paul recognizes that none of this is taking God by surprise and it does not suggest any failure on God's part look at verse 6 but it is not as though the word of God has failed for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. In other words, God never promised to save everybody. In fact, this is key. He is in no way obligated to save anybody. Regardless of who they are. And he uses Ishmael and Isaac as examples. Both were children of Abraham. But God chose Isaac and he did not choose Ishmael. Then Paul goes to offer even more examples. Look at verse 10. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, That's, this is Isaac's wife, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. We learn something very important from these verses. We don't know why one person was chosen and another not. But here's the one thing we do know. That this God's choice does not depend on one person being better than the other. You see that in verse 11, right? For the, This is Paul's point. For though the twins were not yet born, they had not done anything good or bad. But so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. And we know that God doesn't choose Isaac instead of Ishmael because Sarah was better than Hagar. Think about it. Jacob and Esau, they have the same father and the same mother. And in a lot of ways, Esau is more noble than Jacob was. Think about the family tree of Jesus. We have Rahab, prostitute. We have Ruth, Gentile. Bathsheba, the illegitimate wife of David, who he won by murdering her husband, who happened to be one of his closest companions. Here's a point that Paul is driving home. Salvation is a gift of grace. 
a gift of kindness, not a reward for any goodness that we have done. In fact, instead of choosing the best, the Bible is clear that God often chooses the worst. If you're tempted for this doctrine to make you proud, (laughs) I encourage you to go back to the Bible. Because the Bible says he didn't choose you because you were great. He's making a name for himself, not for you. And to do that, he often chooses the worst. Look, look at this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world. If you're in Christ this morning, why did God choose me? Maybe he chose you because you were foolish. He chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. Look again at Romans 9 verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God is there. May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or on the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. You see what Paul just did? He just answered the question that everybody, probably some of you are having right now, when you, when you first hear about God choosing some and not others, what's the question on our minds? God, that doesn't sound fair to me. Is <laughs> that question. That's what he says. He says, there, there's no injustice with God, is there? Listen to me very carefully. You don't want God to be fair to you. You don't want God to be fair to you. You don't want God to give you what you deserve. Because if God gave Tommy Hullett, or God gave Rob Cerrito, or God gave any of you what you deserve, you would not be here worshiping Him. You would be in hell. We want God to be gracious. And grace, by definition comes with no obligation to give it. It's just kind. It's just kind. Who does God choose? Look at verse 15. I will have mercy on who? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Who will God show compassion to? Answer. The ones he shows compassion to. He's not under obligation to show compassion to anybody. He can send us all to hell. One of the most arrogant questions that a mortal who's been shown grace could ever ask is, why doesn't God choose everybody? If we have just a sliver of a clue 
of God's perfection and our sinfulness, the question in our minds would be, God, why in the world would you choose to show kindness to me? Can I remind you that to choose you meant to slaughter his son? Why would you love me like that? Three other questions very quickly. Does God ever reject people who want to love and serve Him? That is very easy to answer, and the answer is no. No. So some people have this idea that, that God is, is standing in heaven, and one day there are going to be all kinds of people saying, please let me in, please, please, I just, please let me worship you, please let me have you forever, please let me enjoy you, please, please let me live in, in your in your new heaven and new earth, under your reign forever. And God says, no, I haven't chosen you. And then there are other people who are kicking and screaming, I don't want to go to heaven, I don't want to go to heaven. He's like, tough, you've been chosen. This, this, this is not, this has nothing to do with anything that, that the Bible says. There's no hint of any of that in the Bible. Here's the picture of the Bible. That people are universally wicked from the womb. We don't have to teach children how to be bad. They know it already. They're rebellious from the womb. We live for ourselves, not for God. That light has come into the world. And that people love the darkness rather than the light because our deeds are evil. Light comes into the world and what do they do? They did the same thing you would do. They crucified Him. Can anybody, can anybody here say, you know what, that might be true of you, might be true of the rest of these knuckleheads in the room, but it's not true, true of me. From the womb, I have been good. And my heart has been good. And I have from the womb loved the Lord my God with all my heart and all my soul and all of our mind. And I have always loved my neighbor, my brother, my sister, my mother, my daddy, all of my neighbors, as I love myself. I have always put others before. There's not even been a thought of myself. Anybody? No, the Bible's very clear. Had he not run after us, heaven would be empty. God is not rejecting a people who want him. It's quite the opposite. <laughs> Ours is a God who stands with arms wide open and says, Whosoever will, let them come. He, he stands in the middle of a feast and says, Come to me. Who? All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He opens up his arms and he says, whoever is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. Therefore, repent and live. And every single person in this room, I said it for years. No, thank you. I'm living for me. But our God is a God of stubborn grace. And he's chosen to conquer our rebellion. My story is one that I was at a party one week doing all kinds of terrible things. 
Two weeks later, I said, I got to get out of this place. I don't want anything to do with this. It was grace. Coming after me in a wicked, wicked environment. He is the Luke 15 shepherd who leaves the flock in open pasture and goes after the one little sheep who's wandered away. And when he has found it, the Bible says, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger, he interposed his precious blood. He loved me before I knew him. He sought me and he bought me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Another question, does God's choice mean that we are not responsible for our decisions? This is, this is precisely the question Paul anticipates in Romans 9 verse 19. Nothing that I have said, nor is there any word in the Bible that would cast any doubt on the responsibility of human beings. We will give an account for everything that we do. Matthew 23, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. But, if you come to faith in Christ, here's what you can know. That was, that was Him and not you. Look at John 1. He was in the world and the world was made through Him. Speaking of Jesus, and the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on His name, who were born not of the of blood. There's no ancestry about it, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Romans 9, So then it does not depend on the man who wills, or on the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. 1 Corinthians 1.30 But by His doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. How does He do it? The answer is we don't know. <laughs> uh, we don't know the Trinity. We don't understand the Trinity. I don't understand how God has always existed and always will exist. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't understand those things. I don't understand how he spoke and creation came out of nothing. The reality is I don't understand my own wife. You don't understand yourself. Much less God. But it is the height of arrogance to believe that you have to understand it before it can be true. The Bible clearly teaches both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And so we embrace both. I can tell you this, it's not robotic. It's not clunky. Some people hear this and say, oh, you're talking about God making people out of robots and He just telling people what to do. Well, show me that in the Scripture. 
You, you won't find it. But, but here, here's, what you do, here's what you do find. He, Hebrews chapter 13 that we read every single week and that we, we, we celebrate every single week. Notice this. Notice how God works. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will. Him working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. Well, who's working? He is. And we are. It's God at work in us both to will and to work according to His good pleasure. It's not this clunky robotic thing. We're human beings. We're very complex. God is very complex. And He's working secretly in our life. Just by the way, this is why it's possible for us to have a Bible that was written by humans, but every single word is exactly the way He wanted it. How did He do that? He didn't recite it. He worked through the individual personalities of each of the biblical writers and they are writing the, the weight, the passion that's on their heart. That, and the end result is exactly the way He wanted it. God is sovereign and we are responsible. Maybe we'll get to heaven He'll explain it to us. Here's a really important question. Why is it so important that we get this? Here's, here's one that, that is so important. This is, this is the difference between heaven and hell right here. Election makes it clear that we are saved by grace alone. Look at Romans 9 verse 11. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that, why did he set it up this way? Here's the answer. So that God's purpose according to His choice would stand not because of works, but because of Him who calls. That's what gets, what's at stake. God wants to make it perfectly clear that our goodness and our works have nothing whatsoever to do with our salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. 90% us? 95% us? 99% us? 99.9% us? What does Ephesians 2 verse 8 say? No. It's all of grace. He did it all. Nothing that commended us to God. We're saved simply because He loves us. Unconditional election is the end of self-righteousness to all those who believe. This is so important that if I get this, it means I can be honest about my sin. I can be honest with you about my weaknesses. I can be honest with you about my failures. Listen to what God is saying. I don't love you because you're great. I love you because you're mine. Aren't we, aren't we prone to pretend? Aren't you prone to, to, just, to just broadcast an image of yourself that is way better than the way it really is? 
I have a setting on my computer when I do Zoom calls. There's a little setting there you can say. Do, do you, I, I forget how it, how it says it, but it's something like, do you want us to improve your appearance? And I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> Please do that. Filters on our phone. Ruth took a picture of Eve and me one time, and I look at that picture, and I'm like, is that, who is that? I don't know what filter you use, but keep using it. Isn't it tempting to live like that? The doctrine of divine election says that's silliness. You're not here because you're lovely. He loved you. Because he loved you, he's made you lovely. We, we can lay it out. I, we have nothing to prove. It's chosen because I was foolish. Secondly, it gives us hope that God will persevere us all the way to the end. If there's one thing life has done for me, if there's one thing being married and having kids has done for me, if there's one thing being a pastor has done for me, it's reminded me daily how weak I am. And I'll tell you, I'm tempted to give up sometimes. But I have a promise. That the God of sovereign grace, who sovereignly began a good work in me, is going to carry it through to completion all the way to the end. That spurs me on to keep going. Thirdly, this ought to make us bold and expectant in our evangelism. Like you, you look down through the list of the redeemed in the Bible, and it reads like a list of America's most wanted. Right? Abraham, idol worshiper, adulterer, and twice he allows his wife to marry other men to save his own neck. Moses, murderer and coward. David, murderer, liar, adulterer. Samson, womanizer, complete idiot. Nebuchadnezzar. Don't you love Nebuchadnezzar's conversion story? Now that'll give you hope in American 2020. Here, here is a cruel, self-absorbed, narcissistic tyrant. And he becomes a worshiper. And even writes part of the Bible. You keep on going down the list. Zacchaeus, traitor, thief. Peter, Paul, Mary Magdalene, Matthew, Thomas, Nicodemus, the Roman centurion, the Philippian jailer. We're talking about hardened sinners. But they're no match for sovereign grace. 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the feminine, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. This is a good question for us to ask. Who do you have in your life that you look at them and you're like, they'll never be saved? 
pray. Why do we pray for people to be saved? That's exactly right. And we have this crazy idea that God is able to work in their heart to bring them to faith in Christ. We're praying because we believe in sovereign grace. He can overcome anything that he chooses to overcome. Could God have saved Ishmael if he wanted to? Absolutely. This is, this is why, armed with this, First Baptist Church needs to step out in boldness to share the gospel. Guess what God tends to do when people share the gospel? He tends to save people. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we have an old plan, a divine choice, finally a great salvation. Look at verse 20 back in Genesis chapter 17. God says to Abraham, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him, and I will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly, and he shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. You can write this down. We learn from Genesis 21, 13, that Ishmael is being blessed because he's Abraham's son. And notice what this means in verse 20. God is promising to make him prosperous and numerous and vigorous. God is promising to make him mighty. From an earthly perspective, he's got it made. Money, power, a legacy. Here's a good question for you to ask yourself. If that was said of me, would I be satisfied with that? But then look at verse 21. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac. These are words that would change your life if you take them to heart. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac. And let's be reminded what that means. Look up to verse 7. I will establish my covenant, Abraham, between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Ishmael gets rich, but Isaac gets God. Why are Christians so eager to gather together and sing? Why are we so eager to, to be willing to be treated, as 1 Corinthians 4 says, like the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world? Why is it that a Christian would be willing to give up all their possessions? They see a person in need, and a Christian wants to give up everything in order to meet that need. Why? Why would you give up all of what the world calls the blessing of God? Why would you do that? It is because we have a promise. It's the same promise that we receive in Revelation 22. It's the greatest promise ever promised. They will see His face. 
This morning, God is offering himself to you. He promised Ishmael money and power. He's offering you Christ. He's offering you Himself. Come to me, He says. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that who? Whoever would believe in Him, would not perish, but have everlasting life with Him. Without Him, you will deceive exactly what you deserve. Jesus describes hell as a fire that will not be quenched, where the worms never die. But if you turn from your sin and trust in Him this morning, you'll receive what you don't deserve. You'll receive what only Jesus deserves. You'll receive a Savior who will take His stand at the judgment seat of God and plead your case. And I want to remind you, if Jesus takes up your case, He won't lose. God himself will adopt you as his child so that he can look you in the face and say you'll never, ever, ever fear condemnation ever again. Let me ask you this. Where are you resisting him? You know what I'm talking about? Like in your life where you're like, God, okay, here I am. And let's talk about this, and let's talk about this, and let's talk about this, and I'll give you that, that, that. But let's not talk about this thing over here. Stop resisting. We sang it today. Jesus was pleased to be tortured for you. Pleased to be hung in shame, naked on a cross, with nails hanging him to a piece of wood like a piece of meat. You really going to doubt his love for you? Why are you resisting him? Surrender it. Surrender your will. Surrender your mind. Surrender your body. Surrender your desires. It, it, surrender your... Isn't that exactly what Jesus did for you? Surrendered everything for you. This morning I was praying that there would be somebody here, like, like me, in between those two wicked parties. And I couldn't explain it, but God was drawing me to Himself. I couldn't explain it, but He was changing my desires. I, I couldn't explain it, but here I wanted Jesus to leave me alone, and here I just wanted Jesus.
if that's happened, stop resisting. I don't know what's happening. Here's what I know, that I'm sick of my sin. And I believe that you sent your son to die in my place to earn me, to earn for me a place with you forever. I want to behold your face. You'll be saved. And for all of us who are saved this morning, this is a call to worship. This is a call to worship, not just here, but a call for us to live our life, as it were, on our face, praising our God who overcame our resistance and made us His. It is by His doing you are in Christ Jesus who becomes to us wisdom from God and sanctification and redemption so that He who boasts would boast in the Lord. So let's praise Him. Let's praise Him all our days. Let's praise Him at work. Let's praise Him at home. Let's praise Him when nobody's looking. And let's, let's make the question that remains forever on our heart. Why me? Why would you choose to show such kindness to me? Let's pray. Father in heaven, there's nothing that we can do in ourselves and there is nothing that anybody can do outside of us to make us believe. But you are the sovereign one who's able to give faith. I pray today that your word would produce the fruit of faith. Of genuine, humble repentance this morning. Lord, I pray that you would draw people to yourself <laughs> and that we would live our life thankful. Live our life in anticipation of the day when we will see your face. We pray that you would do it. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the First Baptist Newton Podcast. If you want to learn more, check out our website at newtonfbc.org. We'll see you next time.